You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I got to tell you something, people. Around a little over eight years ago, I was hanging out at one of my local, many local watering holes in Burbank. I used to walk down the street to the strip. And, and Cooper Talk was going for like two years. And I was getting a lot of actors and comics and TV writers I knew. And I never had musicians. And there was these two guys in the bar. And they had long hair and they looked like rockers. So I went up and I started talking to them. And one actually was Troy Patrick Farrell, who I became friends with, who had Thanksgiving in our house a few times. And the other is my guest today, and I finally got him on. It's been eight and a half years. I, I lost touch with him. I just, it was it was Burbank. It was late. It was a dark bar. And my guest is John Karabi. How you doing, John? I'm all right. That's, uh, I think I vaguely remember that, <laughs> which well, is was... weird. If we, were, if we were in a bar and drinking, that's really unusual. <laughs> So, yeah, so I got to ask you, uh, first of all, you just had the, uh, a big concert this weekend. What was that like, being out with the whole community, and what, how, did you, how did you enjoy it? Uh, you know what? It was, it was really cool to get back to work again. Um, you know, I'm still being a little, you know, I, it, you know the opinions on this shit vary. It's, it's, it's so unbelievable, but... I, I was cautious, um, you know. I, I did. I, I met some of the fans, and I took some photos, and uh, you know. But it was just great to be back to work, man. It's like eighteen months. You know, the year prior to the the whole lockdown thing, I two thousand nineteen. I I was uh, I I had left the Daisies, and I was doing my own thing, and I probably did a hundred, hundred and twenty five shows. And I think since lockdown, March, March of 2020, I think I've done maybe eight or ten shows. So it was it was kind of brutal the last 18 months. So it was really good to get back out again and play. And um, I'm actually leaving next week. I'm doing seven shows in Mexico. And things are now just slowly starting to pick up. So I'm happy. Now... Is there a big following for you in Mexico? Because I know, you know, you're the the harder rock, I know Latin countries love it. I've heard, you know, like South America is crazy. I know the daisies are big everywhere. But how did you how do you think you cultivated a, a following in Mexico? Well, my first trip there was with Motley in ninety four. Um, and it was complete lunacy when we were down there. Because Motley um, Prior to that tour, Motley had never played down there either. So when we showed up, it was like freaking Beatles were coming. It was it was crazy. And then I've gone down. Um, there was a couple of years where I didn't go, and then I had Union, um, and the guys from uh, you know Bruce Kulick obviously was in Kiss, and there's a bunch of. Uh, huge kiss fans down there and they did a uh, they actually brought us down through the kiss connection they brought us down to do a, a few shows there with union and with this other thing that i was doing the eric singer project um so i've kind of always continued to go down there whether it was um like i said with motley union esp the Dead Daisies. I've actually even done a few solo shows down there. So the fans down there are amazing. Um, you know, and, it, and, it, and it, it's, I got to be honest with you, like everywhere but America, 
it seems that the fans are a little more apt. Like once they're once they're into an artist, it's like a lifetime membership. Do you know what I mean? They don't seem to toss things aside as so quickly or freely as Americans do. I think we tend to get over things really quick. Well, do you I, know what I mean? I think a lot of times it's also, and this, I'm not one of these people because I love all the music I've loved and I've always kept loving it, but I think a lot of times people are afraid that if they if they say they still like this band, people are going to say, oh, that's not cool. And then they're going to be like, oh, I want to be cool. And so they, they drop it instead of just really following their heart. Yeah, well, and, but it, you know, it's, it's, it's really, I kind of, I got to blame it on uh, like uh, uh, American radio. And it's, and it's weird. Like American radio latches on to something new, whether it's, you know, 80s rock or grunge rock or punk rock, whatever you want to call it. They latch onto it and then they just saturate the market with it to the, to the point where like two things happen. You, you get tired of hearing the songs. Do you know what I mean? And you move on and, and then what happens is then radio stops and they move on to the next thing. They've saturated the market so much that they start looking for the new thing. And then once they hit the new thing, they don't play the old things anymore. Um, you know, and so it's 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 kind of weird. But, it, like, America's really the only place that that happens in. It's crazy. You know, bands like the Dead Daisies or myself or whatever, I get airplay everywhere else in the world except America, my home country. Does, you know that, what I mean? does that sort of piss you off? Because I think it would. You know, it's like you know, it's funny because I know I've talked to some of the some of the eighties bands from England, and they said like the the people over there are just pricks to them. Like it's not as bad here. Like you know, they hate the success, and the press is awful if you're a little bit different. But does that bother you? Because you know, you, you can hear yourself all over the world, but the place you grew up in, you don't hear. It. Yeah, but it's that thing, man. I I, I don't know what it is like. And, and without getting, I'm, I'm not getting political in any way, shape, or form. Because America is a great country, you know, it's a land of opportunity. We know, we all know this. But the thing of it is, is we're so obsessed with, um, we're so, America is so obsessed with like success and wealth and 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 having everything yesterday. Do you know what I mean? Like even I have some I have some friends all throughout the world, like uh, you know, in in Switzerland and France, and I, I don't want to say they they laugh at America, but they laugh at the way Americans uh, go about their business. And they were like, "Man, you guys are so fast with everything. You have drive-through food, drive-through coffee, drive-through pharmacies, drive-through like everything's drive-through." You know, they're like, man, you guys need to learn and, uh, you know, go to work and work hard. But, you know, 12 o'clock, take a lunch and sit down with your associates at work and, and, and have a sandwich and talk and, and, and then have an espresso afterwards and then go back to work. Like, they've kind of figured out the, the art of pacing. Do you know what I mean? And I think America hasn't quite figured that out yet. So, like I was saying... We saturate the market with all this music, 
and it, it just burns everybody out. And, you know, like, not again, not to sound weird, you know, I'm, I'm 62 years old. I've been doing this for 30, 40 years. You know, I go to, a, I go to places like England or France or Germany and it's like that old thing, like respect your elders kind of deal, you know? So there's still an element of respect there from the fans. Um, and even younger fans come and they say, oh, you know, like I love, you know, this music that you've done over the years. But here in America, it's almost like, you know, once you reach a certain age, you're kind of, you know, take the old bull, put him out to pasture. You know what I mean? It's so the whole system here is like, it's, it's weird. Like, and I've said it before, man, it's like, I don't understand the fact that you've, you become passe at a certain age in your career. I'm writing music. I'm writing lyrics. I'm playing a guitar. I'm not trying to play metal linebacker for the Philadelphia. Do you know what I mean? It's like health or age or whatever. It really shouldn't matter, but it does. So I, I, I haven't quite figured out why that is, but you know, that's just my viewpoint on the whole thing. I, I have a what? question. I have a question for you and it, it's, it's political when it comes to music and I, and we agree on the same because you posted a while ago about Mark Farner and Mark's been on the show and I know you got the chance to open for him and how he's not in the rock and roll hall of fame. Why do you think that is? And then when you've done that answer, tell me another band you think that should be in the rock and roll hall of fame, but isn't, and you can't believe it. Um, you know, honestly, well, let's, let's break it down and put it in a nutshell. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to me is, it, 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 to a degree, it's a crock of shit. Um, you know, they don't, it's not based on, like, fans voting. There's a board of directors, and we know that the board of directors, uh, you know, a, a majority of them are from Rolling Stone magazine. Rolling Stone magazine never liked Grand Funk. In the height of their career when they were selling out Shea Stadium and, you know, breaking attendance records and selling millions of records and 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 being, like, kicked off the Led Zeppelin tour because they were that fucking good. Um, you, you know what I mean? It, it, it's like they've got... They've got the the bullet points to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but Rolling Stone didn't like them. Rolling Stone went out of their way to slag that band every fucking chance they had. They did the same with Kiss. Um, it wasn't in. It, they did the same with Rush. It wasn't until the fans said, "You know what? Fuck this. We're going to start a petition." And we're going to show these motherfuckers that they deserve to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And then they caved. Um, unfortunately, it hasn't happened for Grand Funk Railroad. But there's there's so many bands. Like, I was shocked a few years ago. Um, like Google or something on my phone, they, they ran. It was right around the time they were doing the inductions. And it was... Right around that time, they ran a list of the biggest snubs 
from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I was shocked that bands like Chicago wasn't in there. I don't know if they have, if they've been elected since, but bands like Deep Purple. I mean, for fuck's sake, if you play guitar, if you play guitar, I'm pretty sure at some point in your life, you're going to sit down and play the fucking opening riff to smoke on the fucking water. And they just got in. Like, I, it's funny you say that. I never really played guitar, but I took guitar lab in high school and I sucked. But that was the one song I wanted to learn. Everyone did that, and they tried to do Heartbreaker by Led's Up and the bomb. And there was, but you're right with with Deep Purple, and and everyone says, you know, what great guitarsmanship that band had. Yeah, it's like Cheap Trick. Ten years after, Jethro Tull is still not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I believe. Um, you know, uh, Journey. I, I mean, the list is it's mind boggling, and we're talking about bands that have sold. Millions and millions and millions of records, um, you know, and it, and it's just unbelievable to me, you know, and I, and this is not, this is not in any way, shape or form a, 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 a slag towards rap or any other genre of music, but, you know, it should not be called the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It should just be called the Music Hall of Fame. If you're going to call it the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, stick with rock and roll. You know what I mean? Don't put in Dr. Dre or don't put in Public Enemy or don't put in Madonna or don't. You know what I mean? It's like I, I don't I don't get it. Um, y- you know, you're not going to see you're not going to see uh, or, or like even Michael Jackson, for that matter. I mean, Michael Jackson was an amazing artist, but he's not rock and roll. You know what I mean? Um, you know, and you're not going to see Bruce Springsteen anytime in the near future performing at the BET Awards. So call it what it is. It's a music hall of fame. It is not the rock and roll hall of fame. Going to call it the rock and roll hall of fame. Then you rethink your voting system and you need to put the people in there that were rock and roll icons and are not, are not in there. I think Finn Lizzy, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, none of those guys are in yet. And it's in, it's insane, insane to me. Now, what what got you on the path to rock and roll? What, what, area, what area of Philadelphia are you from? Pick one. I lived all over that city. I was born in South Philadelphia. Um, about a year after I was born, my parents moved to... Um, an area up in North Philadelphia. It's called the Logan section of Philadelphia, which is looks like Beirut now. Um, I lived in. Uh, I lived up near Academy Road. I lived near Street Road. Uh, then I. Then I. Right before I moved to California, I lived in Kensington. Good old good section of Philly. K and A. They call K and A. And that I that's exactly where I lived. I lived I lived one block over on a street called G Street. And when I was younger, there's a giant bank, or there used to be, right at the corner of Kensington and Allegheny, and there was a street right next to it called Shelbourne. And I lived right on that little street right next to the bank. So 
Yeah, I cut my teeth. It was funny, Jeff Labar, Jeff Labar and I used to kid each other. Um, you know, I said something about, yeah, I, I was, you know, came from a pretty rough section in Philadelphia. And he thought I was out from, like, the main line or, you know, one of those things. And I said, yeah, man, I said, my, my area where I grew up, I said, man, it's a ghetto now. And he goes, oh, yeah, where, where's that? And I go, and so I started telling him. And I go, man, I lived at a, in Logan at 8th and the Boulevard, and I lived in K&A. And he goes, holy shit, dude, I wouldn't walk through those neighborhoods. That's where I used to get my drugs. <laughs> no shit, I probably sold them to you. <laughs> so, so when did you start playing music? Um, God, I was still in elementary school. I have no idea why. I was fascinated with the Beatles. And then one year, my parents bought me an acoustic guitar, a Sear Silvertone, um, you know, little cheapy acoustic guitar. And uh, I started goofing off playing like, you know, Simon and Garfunkel and the Beatles. And, um, and I was kind of doing it. It was more of a hobby thing. But then I joined a band in grade school and we did a talent show at school and complete fluke. We worked up these two songs. We were doing, um, house of the rising sun by the animals. And we did, I'm not your stepping stone by the monkeys. Rehearsed them. We had them. We get on stage and there was a girl that was supposed to do the keep. She was playing keyboards she was supposed to sing and curtains open and she just freezes. So I walked up to the mic. I started singing, played guitar and we won. We won this little town show and it was hilarious because I realized then that I'm, <laughs> there's a little part of me that has to be the center of attention. So I love the fact that all these people were clapping. And then my dad took me out for pizza afterwards. And I'm like, well, that was fucking awesome. <laughs> Everybody's clapping for me and I got paid with pizza for it. So, you know, and then, then at that point I was in, it was like, forget about it. Lost. Now, were you in the Philly scene? Cause I know I'm thinking what year it is. I know the Philly, you know, the Philly had the empire rock club and the galaxy and they had, different bands were you in that scene before you moved to LA or what was what was your role in that scene um well I started out playing covers for probably four or five years probably around the time I, I 17 or 18 I started playing in cover bands and we played um god everywhere the penalty box Dickleys, Bogies, uh, Bullwinkles. Uh, we played up north at a place called um, the Satellite Lounge. Played down the shore, Tony Marts, like all those places. And, um, but it was weird. Like, I, I really kind of, I really kind of realized that if I wanted to be Philadelphia's answer to Robert Plant or Steven Tyler or David Bowie or Freddie Mercury, I got to write my own shit. 
And I started doing, I mean, it was crude in the beginning. Like the songs were just really caveman, but I started writing. And then the more I wrote, the better I got at it. But then I started to find, you know, I don't know how old you are, but I remember like back then MMR and YSP, they weren't playing a lot of like original rock shit from the local bands. They were playing Robert Hazard and Heroes, Baru Review, The Hooters, uh, you know, but they were really starting to lean into that whole new wave thing. Uh, the Cars, you know, Elvis Costello, like whatever. So if you were doing originals, you kind of had to mix them in with a few covers. So I started doing that. Um, but it was weird. Like we kind of, once I started doing originals, I lost a lot of the places to play. So at that point it was really, as far as original music goes, there was really only the galaxy and like you said, the empire rock room where you could go play rock originals do you know what i mean now all those places on south street catered to the more robert hazard the Baru reviews and the hooters so we were kind of just left to like i said galaxy and empire rock room um and i had a really good friend go out to california on a vacation and uh, I don't know. Do you remember Johnny D? Um, yeah, didn't he play he, for Britney Fox? Yeah, and and, and Doro. And he went out. He was my drummer at the time, and he went out to California. And he came back. He's like, dude, you got to see California. It's crazy. Every freaking club, it's just all original shit, all originals. So I went out and did a little 10 day vacation out there with my wife at the time. And we checked out the whole scene and I, I was like, yeah, I, this is where I need to be. Um, now mind you, rat was happening. Motley quiet, riot, Like things were really kicking ass out in California, Ozzy. Um, so I went out there with the dreams and aspirations of becoming rich and famous. And it was funny. I don't think I was out there six months and we got word that John Bon Jovi walked into the empire rock room and saw Cinderella. They got signed. And then all, like I was saying earlier about the radio stations, every freaking rec record company on earth was in Philadelphia. And if, if you, you remember right around that time, Cinderella got signed, Tangiers, Britney Fox, Heaven's Edge, and I was in California working at Hertz Rent a Car. I <laughs> go, what the <laughs> fuck did I do? I, I totally went left when I should have just stayed put. But everything works out the way it's supposed to work out. So how did how did you crack the scene in LA? I mean, because you know, I know you ended up with Crew later, but you know, they had to know about you. How did you? How did you? burst into the scene because the strip had so many bands that I mean there were so many bands it was like I used to do stand-up comedy and in Philly there was so many comics and you just had to 
persevere and bust your ass and get recommendations and stuff like that. How did you crack the L.A. scene? Just playing the game. And the game was, um, you know, it was pay to play. Um, they literally, you signed a contract and the promoter gave you a hundred tickets to sell at 10 bucks a pop. And so we, every night of the week, we all had jobs and oddly enough, all four guys moved out one by one from Philadelphia. So it was the band that I started in Philly and we all went out to California, um, but, you know, to everybody's credit, we all had jobs. We came home. We ate dinner. We put on our, you know, uniforms. <laughs> and we, you know, teased our hair out, put the eyeliner on, and we went down and we just hung out at the clubs, handing out flyers, selling tickets. And, you know, it was just this thing I, I mean the first show that we did we were supposed to sell 50 tickets we sold them we just hustled and then it was like okay well you guys are doing uh you guys are doing pretty good so uh let's bump you up to 100 tickets and we sold them we never did a show where we didn't sell all our tickets but it required us every night of the week coming home throwing on a pair of uh you know crazy pants and shirts and teasing the hair and going down the sunset boulevard and buying a beer or two and hanging out with people and telling them how awesome our band was and that we were just, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we'd sell tickets and hand out flyers and it didn't take that long. We, we build up quite a bit of a following in a very short period of time. You know, unfortunately the band imploded, because everybody really just started getting into the whole, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but minus the sex and rock and roll part. <laughs> uh, you know, it just it just kind of imploded, and that was that. But, it, it, you know, it was hard work, man. It was like, here's what everybody else is doing, and we were looking around, and we were seeing bands like Poison, Guns N' Roses, Striper, like uh, Hurricane, all these bands were out every night of the week, walking the strip, talking to people, selling tickets, giving out flyers, um, you know. And so we're like, well, that's how you do it. Let's get out there and make it happen. Was there was there a camaraderie with the bands, or was it is it was it a uh, sort of a competition because you all were younger, you all you all knew you you were going for the record deal? Was it? Did you have camaraderie with these guys, or was it like, ah, fuck these guys. Here comes, you know, the guys from GNR. We hate these guys. How was your relationship on the strip? No, it was, I, listen, I, I think competition is healthy. Um, you know, I mean, even as a comedian, you go and, you know, you, you, you do your thing, and then you get all done, you come off stage, and somebody like, you know, Chris Rock or, or, or you know, or Dave Chappelle comes walking in and does you know, 30 minutes to just crushes, you know, there's like, you respect them, but there is a little bit of a healthy competition there, man. You're like, okay, I need to up my game or, you know, whatever. Um, so, uh, 
you know, it was it was fine. There was there was uh, you know we got along with quite a uh, quite a lot of the bands. And to be honest with you, my my uh, ex wife, the you know mother of my kids, you know she's a Philadelphia girl, Italian. So my apartment, like on the holidays, was like you know it was like a halfway house for wayward musicians that didn't have a place to go for dinner. So, you know, my wife would, you know, she would make a couple trays of lasagna and, you know, we'd go out and try and find a 200 pound bald eagle and cook that and stuff it for Thanksgiving. And, you know, so my house was always loaded with all the musicians that didn't really have anywhere to go at Christmas or Thanksgiving or Easter or whatever. So we get along fine with everybody. You know what I mean? So you guys, go, you, you implode because of the drugs. Now, how does how does Motley Crue find you? Well, after the band that I moved to Philadelphia with, I I joined the band or put, we actually kind of were all looking for different pieces. But the manager that I still have to this day, um, he actually helped put the scream together. And then, we did our thing. We did all our showcases and we did a record. We got signed. Um, we went on tour and the one song that we had was called man in the moon, which was getting quite a bit of airplay. And Nikki six apparently bought the record and he did an interview where he mentioned, uh, you know, they asked him like, Hey, what do you listen to when you're at home? you know, kind of a deal. And he goes, um, you know, I, I really love this band from LA. They're called the scream, you know, and just in this weird set of circumstances, I just picked up the phone and called him to thank him for mentioning our band in, in this magazine interview we did. And oddly enough, it was the day that I called him, I think they just parted ways with Vince either the day before or earlier that day. And they just asked me to come down and, and jam with them. They were looking for a singer. And one thing led to another, and the rest they say is history. I don't know if it's, you know, good history or bad history, but it's history. <laughs> well, mentally for you, how does it... You know, you think, and this is before social media, you know, and I talked to Gary Cerrone when he, you know, went into Van Halen. He talked to different people who sang for Journey, you know, and for you mentally, what is it like when you're going into this band and you're taking the place of Vince? Do you thinking that I want to stay true to myself, but the band maybe wants to be more like Vince? I mean, how did you approach that mentally? Well, to be honest with you, and, and and it's funny, I just wrote a book, and it's it's coming out in April, and I talk about all of this, but, and again, I mean, no disrespect, but I wasn't really a Motley fan. A lot of the stuff that was going on in the 80s, I didn't really care, I don't want to say I didn't care for it, but I, I wasn't as well-versed in a lot of the 80s stuff as I was in the stuff that I grew up listening to, the Black Sabbaths and Led Zeppelins and Queen and Grand Funk Railroad and Humble Pie and all that great shit. 
So when Motley called me, I was a little like, whoa. But when I went there, I wasn't really that intimidated because I, I really believed there's no way I'm going to get this gig because I don't know shit about this band. Do you know what I mean? So I, I wasn't really that intimidated. Um, honestly, I went for the simple reason. A, was I, I called them to thank them. And B, being the little, you know, shyster that I am, I thought that I would just go hang out with them, maybe get to know them a little bit. And if they really liked the band that much, maybe we could go on tour with them when they did their next record, if they liked me. Do you know what I mean? So I just, I, I went and it was weird. Like, you know, two days later, they're like, you're the guy. And I'm like, I didn't see that coming at all. Now, at that point, the way they described Vince, I was like a breath of fresh air to them. I was nothing like Vince. Um, you know, Vince had blonde hair. I had black hair. Um, uh, you know, even the way I approached things vocally was more of a, you know, Steven Tyler, Robert Plant, you know, Steve Marriott, uh, whatever kind of a guy. And Vince is Vince. You know what I mean? So they, they really didn't want me to do anything like Vince. They just said, be yourself. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm good with that. So uh, that was in the beginning. Now, the second record that I did, I think there was a, you know, let, let's face it, the record I did was marginally successful, but not like their previous records. So then they started, uh, then then that's when the comparisons started happening. Well, you know, Vince would do this when he was playing live, or Vince would do that, or, you know, Vince would do a photo session like this. And that's when we started having problems, because... I just started spewing back like, well, fuck it. If you want Vince, get fucking Vince. I'm not Vince. You know what I mean? How I probably should have kept my mouth shut because they did, they did Vince back. But whatever. How, <laughs> how hard is it to learn a whole catalog? Like, you know, you, and you said, you know, you love Black Sabbath. Like if, some, if, if it was a band who said, hey, man, we're playing Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin said, hey, come in. You probably know all their songs inside out because you listen to them. You never really listen to Motley Crue. How... How hard is it to learn all these songs because you have to sing them? I didn't have to in the beginning, though. I had like two years. Um, and, 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 and it was funny because I had been in a band with, with them. The first year, we did nothing but hang out and write together. So their old music... We didn't play one song of, of their back catalog the entire time. Then we were in the studio for like another eight months. So almost two years, we finished the record. We do a video. We actually did a promo tour. And then we came home and we started writing or not writing. We started rehearsing for the tour. And it was hilarious because, you know, 
they came to me and they said, well, you know, what do you feel comfortable singing? And I had, I, I sat there and, and I, I, I was really embarrassed, but I go, um, is there any way that I could get your records? Um, and so Tommy, Tommy's like, wait, you don't have any of our records? And I go, so I'm sitting here, I go, no. So then Tommy goes, it, just out of curiosity, he goes, have you ever seen us live before? And I go, no. And they, they almost fell off the chairs laughing their asses off. They're like, we just picked... Are you fucking kidding me right now? We've got a guy in the band that's never heard any of our music. So they had to give me the records. I went home and I listened to them. And then I came in and this was my first kind of, I don't want to say argument, but disagreement. But we put a set list. I, I just jotted down a bunch of songs that I really liked. and um, So I said, well, I, I, I really like Shout at the Devil and I like Livewire and Wildside. Um, and then I was going on like Primal Scream and Dr. Feelgood. And Nikki goes, we got to do Girls, Girls, Girls. I go, I don't want to do Girls, Girls, Girls. Well, why? I go, because, I mean, no disrespect. I don't fucking like the lyrics. They're, they're dumb. And Nikki, you know... So we started arguing and Tommy pulled Nikki aside and said, listen, dude, he's the singer. You know, he's got to put this shit across to the audience. And if he doesn't believe it, it's not going to be believable. So we didn't do girls, girls, girls in the tour. Um, but it was it was hilarious because they're like, hey, dude, what songs do you want to do for the tour? And I'm like, um, I don't know. Can I get some of your records so I can kind of go back and do some homework they couldn't believe it so so after you guys part ways where's your head mentally like you know you're you're not in that group anymore because a lot of times it's probably like it's like if, if you're an actor and you get a tv series and you think it's going to run for 10 years you know you must have had some inclination that it would last longer than it did but when it didn't where is your head at emotionally You know what? It's it's a very it was a very weird time because I was crushed that I wasn't in the band anymore. I was nervous that I wasn't in the band anymore because you have to remember, prior to me being in that band, I was living kind of hand to mouth, man. I was I had an apartment, a beat up car, you know, and then I was in that band for five years and. You know, I got paid really well in the beginning. I had to buy a car because my car kept dying on the way to rehearsal. So I, I bought a car. And then, you know, they were somewhat insistent on me moving out of Hollywood uh, because it was just, I mean, I was in, I was in Motley maybe three weeks and I got mugged. At, I don't know if you remember this or not, but they're right at uh, the corner of 
La Cienega and Yucca, yeah. there was a Seven there. And I used to live right around the corner. And walk into the 7-Eleven one night, on my way home, I got jumped by three Mexican guys, and they stabbed me like six times with a screwdriver. Um, and I'm sitting there like, oh, shit, this is, I'm going to die right now. Like, I finally get this crazy gig, all this other shit, and I'm going to get stabbed over a $4 necklace. Not even with a knife. It's like, dude, if, if seriously, if you're going to rob me, just fucking stab me with a knife. You stabbed me with a fucking screwdriver. Do you know what I mean? Um, no respect, I tell you. No respect. Um, so, you know, so they were like, dude, we got to get him out of there. So I moved my whole family up to this area called Thousand Oaks. Not a crazy house. You know, just a normal, everyday little neighborhood. But, you know, I got two kids, you know, health insurance, life insurance. My kids are in schools. I got, you know, a car for me, a car for my wife, you know, like, so the gig elevated, but so did my monthly bills. So I was nervous about that. So I was, you know, again, I was crushed and nervous and, you know, worried. But at the same time, I was relieved because, like I was saying earlier, the second record, because the first one didn't sell well, everybody involved in that band, the agents, the managers, the lawyers, you know, the accountants, everybody was, you know, they weren't pulling in the millions and millions of dollars that everybody was used to. And, uh, you know, well, who, who's to blame? The new ingredient. Do you know what I mean? So... I got tired of getting browbeaten by everybody around the band. Um, so it was, it was just like this gamut of, you know, bummed out, but relieved, worried about how I'm going to pay my bills now that my family's in this, you know, three or $400,000 home and my kids are in a good school. How am I going to pay for all this? So it, it was like this gamut of emotions, you know what I mean? It was I was all over the place. So what do you do? How do you how do you how do you how do you reinvent yourself? Because you have to somewhat. You have the talent. If you didn't have the talent, Motley Crue wouldn't have come to get you. And you well, know, I you... I did become the night manager at the Seven Eleven and Thousand Oaks, so I got a little bit of a raise there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> No, but it, it, it was weird. That's when Bruce Kulick came into my life and we started the band Union. Um, we we immediately got to work. like he And he was going through almost the exact same situation. He had been uh, in the band for a really long time. They got together and put the makeup back on with the original members. Uh, now, I was separated... Uh, actually going through a divorce with my wife, but I was living with this girl um, at the time. And so I went through the same thing. I lost the gig. Then the girl suddenly needed her space. And, you know, and so we were, we were running in complete parallel with each other, our lives. And we put union together, which gave us both an income, not much, but not, you know, kiss and motley money. But it gave us money enough to survive and get through that little, mm, 
and then it was very therapeutic for us. I mean, like we would get together to write songs and the first half hour, it'd be like, Oh my God, dude, you're never going to believe what that bitch did to me now. You know what I mean? Talking about the girls that suddenly needed space because we weren't in the, uh, the high profile gigs anymore. Um, so it, it, that's kind of how I got through it. You know, union was really, was a great band. Um, but man, was it therapeutic. Now, how did it affect your writing when you go through a divorce? You know, I just said when you used to first started writing when you were younger, it was very crude and it is going to be because you know, you're younger, you don't really see the world. Now you've, you've been in a, a huge rock band, you've gotten divorced. Did that reflect in your writing? At least when you sat down to write, did you think about that and say, I want to really get emotional or were you sitting there going, I want to write hits? Um, you know, honestly, I've never really, I've never really sat down and looked at writing a song and said, how can I make this radio friendly or how can I make this a hit? I really believe the best stuff, you know, is the stuff that's really kind of written from the heart and really no rhyme or reason to it. You just write to write. You're true to yourself and you just write. Um, so when we were doing the union record, yeah, there was some, there was some songs that were about, you know, the girls leaving or, you know, uh, you know, but honestly, we didn't really think about it. I've never, I've never sat down with my guitar and said, "Okay, I need to write a song like it, that." Was that you know that song is popular? I need to write a song like that. I've never really done that before, so I just really feel like the best way to be is just stick to what I do. Um, those little voices in your head or those sounds in your head. Sorry, there's a plane going over us. Um, you know, I just kind of, like I hear music. I'll sit down, I'll write a riff, and I'll, I'll start hearing things, and I just stick with that blueprint. I don't worry about what's on the radio, what's selling, what's not selling. I, 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 I don't, you know. Tell me. But I we were going to call we were going to call the first union record fuck you die bitch but we 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 kind of toned it down a little bit <laughs> i want to I talk about the dead daisies still on a rat but i want to find out about the the new single cosi bella it's funny i, got, I kept saying to my wife because my wife's italian and uh, oh. I, was, I was going cosi bella she's like what are you saying just leave me alone i'm like cosi bella where did that song come from Again, it was just um, sitting down with an acoustic guitar. I started working on the tune. And um, oddly enough, uh, Marty Fredrickson, who had produced the last couple Dead Daisies records, uh, we were getting ready to write what became the Burn It Down album. And Marty and I live in Nashville, so I called him on the phone. I said, hey, I got a few ideas. I'd like to sit down with you and just kind of develop them a little better before I show them to the band. And I showed him the idea and um, he loved it. And 
it was one of those things, you know, so we kind of, we did a rough map of the song and then, um, we didn't demo it, didn't do anything. I just put it on my phone, recorded it, uh, just me and Marty playing acoustic guitar and scatting a melody. And I laid it down on the table and I played a few ideas and in, in, in their defense, the daisies heard it. And I don't think they quite understood what I was hearing in my head. Um, so they passed. So I'm like, all right, no worries. I'll just throw it in my back pocket and I'll take a look at it again in the future. Um, moving along, that was 2018. 2019, I left the Daisies. I did, like I was saying earlier, 100 freaking gigs that year. Um, and in 2020, I wanted to start doing an album. So uh, I pulled it back out of my phone again. And I talked to Marty about it. And I said, man, I'm really kind of hearing this be like maybe a cross between Penny Lane by the Beatles meets Killer Queen by Queen. And as soon as I said it, he totally understood what I what is, you know. But then the COVID thing hit. And so I wound up doing a lot of the bed tracks here at my house. Uh, in my little home studio. So I did the piano, I did the acoustic guitars, I did the electric guitars, I did bass and drums on a drum machine. And then uh, I sang it. Um, I had a couple buddies come over, we did the backing vocals, and then I just sent everything to Marty. And I said, you know, here's that song that I was talking to you about. And when he heard it, he's like, oh, yeah, 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 I totally understand. So then he went in, he redid the bass, his son redid the drums, and then he sprinkled his, you know, producer's fairy dust on it to make it sound like I knew what I was doing. So. And I listen, I liked it. And you even have a video, which is cool, because I miss videos. Now, just tell me about the Dead Daisies. How, how did you get involved with them? Because, you know, it, it seems like every day people use the term supergroup. You know, they sit there, and it's one of those terms that people tend to use. And if you look through your career, you've been in some super groups, you know. I mean, the people you've played with, I mean, Bruce Kulick, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're stars. You guys all are. How did the Daisies, how did you get involved with the Daisies? Um, They had a singer prior to me, an Australian fellow named John Stevens, who honestly is an amazing singer. Um, for some reason, I don't know if he was having visa issues or whatever the deal was, but it, I was out on tour with my solo band with my son and I got home and my phone rings and I looked down I, and it was Marco Mendoza. So I picked the phone up and, you know, Marco and I chit chatted for a minute and, and he was telling me about this band that he was doing called the Dead Daisies, who, quite honestly, I'd, I'd never heard of before. Um, so he's like, hey, man, we need a singer. We're going to Cuba. We got some shows coming up. We'd love to have you come in. And initially, I said no, because I was content doing what I was doing with my son. And so he just said, listen, man, it, just, just take a weekend 
fly out to L.A. and just meet everybody. Okay, fair enough. So I went out to L.A. Um, and that's when I realized, I'm like, oh, shit, like, it's Brian Tishy on drums, Marco Mendoza, Richard Fortas from Guns N' Roses, and Dizzy Reed from Guns N' Roses on guitar and keyboards, and then this guy, David. So I went out to dinner with them. They told me what they wanted, and they said, listen, just, just can you come to Cuba? And I said, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, let me move some things around. So I went down to Cuba with them, and we did a few shows down there. They had already had this tour set up and this whole thing set up um, with the blessing of the Cuban government and the American government to go down and do some shows. Um, now, if you remember, this was right around the time that Obama had started lifting the sanctions off of Cuba to try and stop with them again. Um, so I did that and then they called me and asked me if I would be in to join in the band. And I really liked playing with the guys. It was great. It, it had a lot of power behind it. And, um, but they said they were doing an album. They were going to Australia. They wanted to finish this record. And, um, you know, but it was weird, like, the way they explained it, I thought they they were saying, like, you know, we're going to need you about half the year, and then the other half of the year, you can do what you want to do, and hopefully the daisies will help your thing, and your thing will help the daisies, And but it was weird, like, once that first record came out that we did together, it just blew up, and we, we went from, you know doing clubs to playing all these major festivals through Europe. We were playing with Kiss, White Snake, you know, Alice Cooper, like doing all these great dates and these massive festivals. And, and it just kept climbing and it started to become all daisies. Meanwhile, I've got my son, you know, this is, this is like the Italian guilt thing. My son's calling me and he's like, oh, great. Awesome, Dad. You know, I moved out to Nashville to put a fucking band together with you. And, um, you know, you're in you're in Europe right now swigging wine. And uh, I'm in Tennessee swinging a freaking pickaxe because I'm doing construction because we don't have any freaking gigs. So I did the daisies for like three years, but the daisies just became... It was just all about the daisies 24-7. And I just wanted to step off the carousel for a minute and get back to doing stuff like Casi Bella. And like I said, hopefully I want to get a couple more songs out and I want to go out with my son again next year and just start hitting the circuit. You know what I mean? Now, so, now when, you know, you went from doing all those shows, you said, and then you did a few solo shows and you went to Mexico and you did a show last week. How do you get yourself back 
in shape per se and, and you're a performer so people don't perform don't know this like when when i did comedy you know when you went on the road for like seven nights when you came back to your hometown you just kicked ass i come into the clubs in philly you kick ass because you get tight you get something but then if you take off a long extended time like when you when you first start doing some gigs after being off for all that time how do you get yourself prepared because it was a long stretch well, I mean, I do sing around the house. I've got a home studio. It's not the same as singing live. So, you know, it's funny. I talked to my wife about this one time. I was, like, talking about even when I was in the Daisies, and she mentioned it. I'm like, oh, man, I got these shows coming up. You know, I haven't really sang, sang in, like, 18 months. You know, I hope I get it together. And my wife is huge supporter. She's like, listen, man, you know, on a bad night, you're still great. <laughs> and, you know, you'll do, like you said, five, six, seven shows. And by the sixth, seventh show, you, the muscle starts getting back into shape again. So I have to go through this period uh, where I kind of have to beat my voice up for a show or two. And the third show, like, I'll be like, uh, uh. I don't even know if I can sing and somewhere it just, it just happens, but it just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And that's the one thing I will say about the daisies. Like we would go out and do these massive, massive tours and I would get into rehearsal and the first couple days I'd be like winded and wouldn't be able to get through like a song that I used to sing easily before, but it was that thing where I'd have to get into rehearsals and third or fourth rehearsal i was just right back in a groove again and then by the end of the tour man i could sing the phone book you know so it, it's just it's a muscle you just got to beat it up a little bit and and um you know beat it up and then it strengthens it strengthens that muscle back up and then by the end of the tour you're just you're singing awesome one final question what can people expect to see you when you're in Mexico? What is your set list like? And will that continue when you start getting out on the road again? And before Mexico, the shows you did, like when you opened for Mark Farner and stuff like that. Um, what What's your set list? What songs are you playing? I, I kind of cover the gamut of my entire career. I try to. But I don't write a set list. Um, it's really loose. Um You know, it's funny, when I first started doing these acoustic shows, I was I had the mindset that I had to do like two or three songs from every record that I did. So I literally sat down and I learned like, God, man, it was like, I had a list of like 40 songs I could choose from. And I was putting in like 20, 25 songs. And... But then I found myself at the end of the night sitting at the merch table or sitting at the bar having a cocktail. The audience was coming up to me and they're like, hey, man, that that third song that you did, like, uh, you know, what is that about? Or why did you write that? Or So I went up, I, you know, I sat there and I was thinking of all these questions that people would ask me. And I said, maybe it's not about doing 25 songs. Maybe it's about doing 14 or 15 or 13 
and just giving the audience some insight into why I do that song or why I wrote that song. I mean, there's some that I do on my acoustic sets. There's, there's like, I'll do a cover song. Um, I've been doing, if you're an Aerosmith fan, but I, I, I do like an old Aerosmith song called Seasons of Wither. And there's a really funny story that goes along with it about how I started doing that song. And it's literally like, I mean, the song's like three minutes long, but that segment of the, of the, the thing, it's, it's literally like a seven-minute dissertation about why I do the song, and there's jokes and comedy along the way. And then I do the song, and the audience loves it. Now it's, now it's gotten to the point where they're like, dude, I love your music, man, but I'd rather just hear the jokes and the fucking stories. And it's, it's just more personable. Um, it's just like an intimate storytellers thing. And then I'll, and then it's funny, like, uh, like I'll fuck with people in the audience as well. You know, so somebody will yell, uh, you know, smoke the sky, you know, from the Motley record. And I'm like, yo, really? Seriously? You fucking douchebag. Like that, that's the heaviest fucking song I've ever recorded. And you want me to play it on a fucking mandolin? What are you, an idiot? You know what I mean? And I'll just fuck with everybody. And they love it. So, it, like, it, it's it's kind of like I'm a cross between, uh, you know, an acoustic an acoustic troubadour and Don Rickles. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, that's awesome, man. I, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on. People, uh, go to John's website, johncarabi.com. You can listen to his new, uh, the new Cozy Bella that's on there. And it's got the video on there. And it also has all his tour dates. So check him out. I know John's on Twitter. He's on Facebook. Uh, follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find 880 episodes up there. Also, email me, cooper, coopertalk.net. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.